This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Hello, I'm Americus Reed, marketing professor at the Wharton School of Business, and I'm here today with Jackie McNish to speak with her about her new book with Sean Silkoff. It's called Losing the Signal, the untold story behind the extraordinary rise and spectacular fall of BlackBerry. This is for Knowledge at Wharton. Jackie, thank you for joining us. Oh, my pleasure, Americus. Excellent. So I just wanted to start off with kind of uh, some particular questions about what drew you to this topic. So tell us a little bit why you wrote this book, Jackie. Well, it started with an investigation I did when I worked at the Globe and Mail here in Canada with my colleague, Sean Silkoff, in the great untold story uh, in Canada, in the technology sector, globally, was how did the maker of something we loved so much and that we were so addicted to, the BlackBerry, fail so quickly? And it was an enduring mystery that was very hard for um, any business journalist to crack. A very, very insular company based in Waterloo, Ontario, outside of Toronto, sort of uh, had a very small business feel to it despite its global, this global reach. And we spent a lot of time trying to crack it. Um, we were finally able to talk to some of the principals and did an investigation for the Globe and Mail and that led to our wonderful agent in Washington, Howard Yude, phoning up and say, you guys should write a book. And uh, that's sort of how it all began. Excellent. So tell me, Jackie, what do you think sets this particular book apart? I mean, it is the case that there are a lot of books that come out for the business press. Tell us a little bit about why this particular book should be on people's must-read lists. I think we live in an era of constant disruption, no matter where you are. There's an algorithm or a new way of doing something that's more efficient, that challenges the old way of doing things. I think we will look back in this period as being as significant socially and economically as the Industrial Revolution. So in this era of disruption, the mother of all disruption stories is the BlackBerry story. A company that introduced the BlackBerry in 1998 became a $20 billion company from nothing in less than a decade, and then four or five years later was back down to a $3 billion company gasping for breath. And it's not only a disruption story, it is a story of the speed of the race, the technology race today. And there has not been um, a technology that has so quickly penetrated the consumer market uh, as the smartphones did, with the BlackBerry being the the, the innovator, uh, not since the television in the 1950s. We've never gone from zero to more than 50% of the consumer market so quickly. Mm-hmm. Super interesting, Jackie. Tell me a little bit about this, because what's fascinating to me is when I look back in the heyday of the BlackBerry brand, I'm reminded of those images of how deeply it was connected to kind of the business community. In other words, it was seen as a symbol of those who had made it professionally. And I remember you know, very, uh, very vividly our president at the time holding up his BlackBerry and saying, I cannot live without my BlackBerry. It's very much in line with what you were describing with respect to this iconic rise of such a great brand. Tell us a little bit about this, the genesis of this rise. What were the key business moments that precipitated this rise to greatness for that particular brand? Well, I think the, you know, timing is everything and 
coming from an outside perspective is very important in innovation. And at the time, in the 1990s, a lot of people were racing in sort of the handheld device space. We remember when the Palm was the it thing, but that only, you know, synced your calendars and, and your contacts with your desktop. Um, but it was the hot thing then. The other big hot thing was Motorola's Tango. The one-way pager, the one-way pager, that you know you could sort of send a few messages back, but they were very distant and very unreliable because of their big network. You had IBM uh, trying to do stuff. You had Ericsson as well, strapping its cell phone, very successful cell phone, onto a tiny keyboard. And if you had fingers the size of a squirrel, you might be able to tap onto it. So all these people were racing to get in that space, essentially, with products they already had. I mean, even Apple tried with the Apple Newton with the stylus, um, and that was a disaster because the software just, just wasn't right. So BlackBerry looked at this market and came at it from a very different point of view. And I think this is the key thing about successful innovation. You're not only offering new innovation, you're changing the rules of the game. And what none of the competitors understood, the big players, was that at that time in the 1990s, bandwidth was very limited for data transmissions. And Mike Lazaridis, the founder of Research in Motion, which was BlackBerry's founding name, understood the traditional conservationist engineer, how limited the bandwidth was at that time. So he created an instrument that, that parceled out bits of data communications and parcels um, so that it would not overtax the networks, whereas everyone else wanted to charge you $4,000 for something that the networks could barely um, barely function to, to, to transmit. So they had that simplicity of design, the conservation of the data being transmitted, and then the, you know, the final you know, wonderful thing was that everyone was using their little squirrel thing key, key, uh, keyboards. He said, what if we create this sort of arced keyboard, but you use opposable thumbs? And that was just sort of one of those breakthrough moments he had one night. So that's the innovation side of the story. The other side of the story is staying alive. Because when you're a small company from Waterloo, Ontario, that's struggling to make it, and you get something right like the BlackBerry, the big players want it. And some of the big players were there from the beginning. Palm tried to buy them. U.S. Robotics, when it was making modems for mobile data communications, placed a big order, then withdrew it, nearly killing the company because they took on debt to meet that order. And that that was managed by Jim Balsillie, a Canadian businessman who went to Harvard and came back and decided that technology was going to be the key to his success. And the two of them were a powerful combination in the early days. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that this there, there was sort of a, a race to 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 get to a certain level with respect to market growth and innovation and also i guess in the midst of sort of realizing that you've got your hands on kind of an important innovation that can disrupt if you will at least at that time uh, sort of how people are, are thinking about the, the mobile device as a product can you speak a little bit about you know the particular strategies that were being pursued at that time by the company do you mean in terms of how they were going to be able to to sell it, given that they were a small company that yeah. were just coming on, and that was their biggest problem because in, sort of the scale you know, up question, yes, yeah. So, the, so the big challenge for them was that they were, as far as their main core audience, you know, the Wall Street bankers, the lawyers, the business people across, 
you know, the Fortune 500 companies, their big obstacle was the chief information officer. They, you know, they dealt with Microsoft, they dealt with Cisco, you know, they dealt with Motorola. They didn't know what a research in motion was, and they were not going to make a career bet that a little company uh, from Canada was going to be able to keep up with their demand and service and ensure the communication. So they did something very innovative. They created these guerrilla marketing teams, literally young kids, where they threw boxes of blackberries in the back of their cars and they went to conferences. They went to airports and they specifically looked at the airports for people that were carrying back then the, the big, heavy, you know, laptop computers with the large modems that may or may not have worked and said, here, try this. And they called it the puppy dog routine. They said, give us your card. You can have this free for a month. Um, you know, let us know what you think of it. And then, you know, then and, you know, they were so successful at it, and they had such a small back office that for years people were using their Blackberries for free because they couldn't figure out who their clients were <laughs> because they were handing so many of them gotcha. out spontaneously. Gotcha. So they had that much faith in what the, the power of the technology. They were willing to literally let people just try it. That's to form right. an impression. Very, and, very interesting. And word of mouth was very key. Early, in a, you know, early adapters were Michael Dell, Jack Walsh, and just as you described, the CEO of your company says, "Wow, I love this thing. I'm addicted to it. Everyone wants to have it, and it ripples down the the, the organization." Gotcha. So it really was a bottoms up sort of an approach, really bootstrapping, and really sort of getting feet on the ground to sort of spread this word of mouth, and really to put the technology in people's hands so that they could try it out. Absolutely. Very, very interesting. So it's interesting because one of the things that we think about in this branding perspective, talk a little bit about the BlackBerry brand and and how it was part of this calculus associated with the business strategy. You know what? This company grew so fast that I don't think they even thought about brand. I mean, that's the amazing thing. And they could do that as long as they had the technology. I mean, Mike was you know, the conservative engineer who, you know, created out of the lab. And their clients initially was not so much consumers. I mean, certainly it was the the professionals, the business professionals. You had to have it. But their main clients and the people that mattered the most were the carriers. So they had to convince the carriers to sell it. And then they entered this new world where they'd be offering discounts on the smartphones, which really sort of um, juiced sales um, and put them in the hands of a lot of consumers. And that was an advantage in the early days. And later, as things started to fall apart, you know, a lot of people believe that one of their biggest problems was they didn't fully understand who their consumers were because they had to spend so much time making the carriers happy. And they were, and it was a very limiting relationship because, again, back in the days of limited bandwidth on the networks, they were the the carriers were very rigorous about what they would allow. And Steve Jobs said for years, I will never make a smartphone. He called the carriers the four orifices. You couldn't get anything down their pipelines without their permission. Mm -hmm. And only when he saw the success of BlackBerry, which, you know, leapt to control right away 58% of the smartphone market, Mm -hmm. did they set their sights on that market and then they reinvented it on their terms. Interesting. Super interesting. This is very, very interesting, Jackie, because the point that you made about this acceleration to market growth, right, this 58% of the mobile space market. And I was just looking recently at um, sort of the current state of affairs with BlackBerry in terms of its market share in the mobile space. I guess they are about to introduce a new partnership with Android for a new device that's coming out recently. But can you talk a little bit about, you know, you talked to some extent about this notion of this rise to greatness. 
And it's equally iconic, the rise, the fall, if you will, uh, that you had mentioned earlier. Can you talk a little bit about that? What, what was it that was behind kind of this deacceleration? Was it a series of events? Was it, was it death by a thousand cuts? Was it, uh, was it something foreseeable? Give us some insight into that. Well, I think the, the pivotal moment is uh, January 2007, um, when Steve Jobs walks onto the stage in San Francisco and holds, holds up that shiny glass object that we all know and love so much mm-hmm. and said, this is an iPhone. It brings you computing, it brings you the Internet, and it brings you email, and three things. And the interesting thing is that he not only brought on the iPhone, the prototype for the iPhone, and said, I'm going to change the world, um, he also brought on stage the head of AT&T Mobility. And this is where he changed the rules of the game, because really the iPhone is just an iteration um, of, of the smartphone that BlackBerry started, only they added more. And so they brought on the AT&T executive on stage, announced a five-year exclusive contract, and that did two things. It gave AT&T the incentive to spend billions of dollars on upgrading its networks, and it gave every it made every other carrier nuts because they wanted to have the same thing, and they all went out looking for an antidote to to the iPhone. And the really compelling part of the BlackBerry story is how they reacted that day. For example, over in Mountain View, California, you had the folks at Google under a secret project. One was for a new keyboard phone, and another was for a touchscreen phone that was going to be run on Android. And the minute they watched that you know, live streaming on, on, on the Internet, they realized that their project keyboard was dead, and they immediately shifted everything to the, to the, to the touchscreen phone. And the folks back in Waterloo, Mike Lazaridis, looked at this announcement, looked at what Steve Jobs was offering, and said, this is an impossibility. Again, the conservative engineer brought up in the conservation said, the networks won't, won't be able to carry this. It's an impossibility. It's illogical that anyone would even propose this. And he was right for the first two years, <laughs> because remember, all the dropped calls, mm-hmm. all the frustrations, all the lawsuits to, against Apple and the right. carriers, it didn't work. Working out but the then kinks. it did, mm-hmm. and, and RIM got it wrong. They got it wrong, and so two years is a lifetime in, tech, in a technology race. And by the time they realized what a serious threat was, they were at that point followers. Very interesting. What do you think is the is the public's greatest misconception about the BlackBerry story, Jackie? I think a lot of people think that Mike and Jim and the folks in the senior offices at BlackBerry were arrogant and didn't understand um, iPhone and just focused only on BlackBerry. And there is an element of truth to all of that. Yes, they missed the turn. They were missing the turn at a time they were going from zero to $20 billion. They were growing at a rate of 25% every quarter. You talk to any business person, that's an impossibility. They were expanding in Indonesia, in India, in other parts of the world. They were huge. They couldn't keep up with the demand, and they were they were co-producing new factories everywhere to keep up with it. So imagine going to your board of directors or your shareholders because you're a publicly traded company and saying, you know, this BlackBerry thing, it's probably going to be history in a couple of years. We're going to stop making it and we're going to regroup and move into something we know nothing about. You just, you know, the, when you have that kind of momentum, it's really hard. It's hard. You become a victim of your own success in some exactly. senses. Yeah, very, exactly. Very and I think when you're a publicly traded company, mm-hmm. your options are pretty limited. And then what I would layer on top of that 
is they had a series of really unfortunate events. Everything from a horrific um, and badly managed patent battle in the United States. They had the three-day outage in 2009, which made everyone question their faith. And the BlackBerry, like we all remember where we were for those three days. <laughs> That's right. We couldn't get our emails. Where were you when your BlackBerry failed? And then there was the playbook, and then mm-hmm. there was other phones. That There was just one disaster after another. And, mm-hmm. you know, this is how businesses fail. At first it's slow, and then it's very fast. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Very, very interesting stuff, Jackie. I'd like you to tell us a little bit. We're about to wrap up, so I want to hit you with some some closing questions. Take us a little bit through what you think are the key takeaways. And, and someone who reads your book, you know, the critical learnings for business strategists from, from reading the book. I know that John Chen is now charged with the, the difficult task of, of turning this thing around. What are some of the broader, broader takeaways and learnings that you think are critical from having read the book? I think I think the thing that I've learned the most, the thing that I take away, and, and, and we conclude with this, is that the race is faster than ever. It never ends. And the people who are the leaders today will most likely be the followers tomorrow because it's very, very difficult to stay ahead because it is so easy today to innovate. And we live in an era where the barriers to entry, you know, the old days when you were a GE factory or an auto factory Mm -hmm. or a parts supplier, Uh, mm -hmm. there were huge barriers to entry because you were spending hundreds of million dollars on plants. So you were pretty well assured that there wouldn't be, you know, an excess of competitors. Today that's disappeared. There are groups of kids coming out of Stanford, out of Waterloo University, and all these technology companies. All they have to do if they've got a visa card is rent server time, set up an office, you know, get some, you know, some people with code experience. They can, you know, even rent apps for how to do internet if you're a re- retailer, which is what Shopify is all about here in Canada. But those barriers don't exist anymore. So, you know, you're these days you're an algorithm away from some pretty serious competition. You look what Apple's trying to do with payment system. I wouldn't want to be a bank right now. I mean, there's a lot of disruption, and mm-hmm. the worst mistake you could think is that we're better. We can outmuscle them, or we can buy them, mm-hmm. you know, or, or you know, handle that competition. I don't gotcha. think you can. Gotcha. I think it, you know, it's game on everything. It's game on everything. Very, very interesting. The book is called "Losing the Signal: The Untold Story Behind the Extraordinary Rise and Spectacular Fall of BlackBerry." Uh, written by Jackie McNish and Sean Silkoff. Uh, very, very interesting stuff. Uh, I appreciate your time today, Jackie, to give us some insight into your work, and we wish you well. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.